0: Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Jeff Currier, and he'll be answering your most important questions on St. Brandon's Atoll. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the internet. If you'd like to ask Jeff a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And While you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on our homepage, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing Business is Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Jeff Courier about St. Brandon's Atoll. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placentia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Kermit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's whipray And then C-A-Y-E, fishinglodge.com. Before we introduce Jeff, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Jeff's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a one-year subscription to the Drake Magazine, courtesy of the Drake Magazine. Who else? And uh, the Drake Magazine is a grassroots journal for fly fishing enthusiasts, no matter where you live. It has stories and photos that will entertain you for hours. So uh, if you don't uh, win this tonight, check them out at uh, drakemag.com. Now, here's how you you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions. It might be a two-part question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talk about during the show, and you just submit your answer along with your name and your location in that text box on our home page. So listen closely and and, uh, take notes and see if you can't win that uh, one-year subscription to Drake Magazine. Our guest tonight is Jeff Courier. Jeff is a fishing ambassador for Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, hosting exotic trips and exploring new destinations. Jeff is a fly fishing lecturer and well-known fish artist. He has taught the skills of fly fishing, guided by fly fishers throughout Wyoming and Yellowstone National Park, and escorted fly fishers throughout six continents for many of the world's greatest game fish. Jeff has appeared on several television shows, including Fishing the West, Fly Fishing the World, in Search of Fly Water. Real Adventures, Fly Fish TV and Fly Fish America. Jeff has also featured Angler in popular fishing movies including Turning Points North, Carpland, Waypoints, Connect and Soulfish Two. Jeff's articles and photographs and artwork have graced the pages of magazines and catalogs, brochures and books. Jeff is the acclaimed author of Courier's Quick and Easy Guide to Saltwater Fly Fishing and Courier's Quick and Easy Guide to Warmwater Fly Fishing Guidebooks. When not fishing, a writing Jeff is usually found working on one of his favorite hobbies, painting fish. His fish art decorates T-shirts, fly reels, coffee mugs, books, magazines, and his original watercolors are always in high demand. Although Jeff spends much of his time fly fishing for trout, he is a walking encyclopedia of fly fishing for species worldwide. He's constantly traveling and developing techniques for catching the most exotic fish imaginable in places where even the most avid adventurer refuses to go. This IGFA world record holder and National Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame record holder has fished in over 55 countries and caught over 380 species of fish on the fly. But not fishing, Jeff can be found lecturing throughout the U.S. and Canada on nearly every aspect of fly fishing. He demonstrates fly casting techniques, fly casting, teaches seminars on the basics to the advanced skills of fly fishing, and presents many fly fishing destination programs ranging from his home waters in the Rockies, to the most remote corners of the globe. Well, Jeff, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio for your eighth interview. Pretty astounding.
1: Thank you, Roger. Good to be back. Always good yeah. to do this.
0: Well, you, uh, I like it, you like it, and our audience likes it, and so I think we have a, a winning solution there. So, Well, you've been off on many other adventures since we last talked, but um, one you've been to twice in the past couple of years is St. Brandon's Atoll. So let's um, let's just chat about where is St. Brandon's Atoll.
1: St. Brandon's Atoll is pretty much uh, the other side of the planet. In fact, it's our antipode. If I drilled a hole through the center of the Earth from Victor, Idaho, I'd pop up about within about 100 miles of St. Brandon's Atoll. So to get there, um, I fly. Usually, we fly to Europe. In fact, both times I've been, we flew. I went via Paris once and via London this year. So that's a long way. We all know that. Well, guess what? Then it's another 12-and-a-half-hour flight from there to Port Louise, Mauritius. And um, that's about two-and-a-half days, really, to to get that far. And then we have a 26- to 30-hour boat ride, uh, 268 miles northeast of the country, the island country of Mauritius and then you're at St. Brandon's Atoll. So it's seriously, it's a good three and a half to four days from my house to my cabin at St. Brandon's Atoll.
0: Wow. So and it's uh, in the Indian Ocean?
1: Yes, it is. So if, uh, I think most people know where Africa is, and uh, just east of Africa, down near the bottom of Africa, you have Madagascar, which is the largest island, I think, in the world, out there in the Indian Ocean, and then it's another 600 miles past that, you'll see a little tiny island nation called Mauritius, and that gets you pretty close to where we're at.
0: So St. Brandon's is, is part of the country it belongs to is Mauritius.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Do you need a visa to go to Mauritius?
1: No, it's uh, pretty simple. You just—it's like going to Belize. They give you the visa on the plane just before you land, and you fill it out, and you're in. It's pretty uh, pretty easy to get in and out.
0: Okay, so Mauritius is what? Is that a collection of islands, basically?
1: I think. Yeah, I think there's there's two main ones, and uh, we fly into the one that has the the capital city, Port Louis. But I think there's a, another island, maybe a couple hundred miles away, and maybe a couple smaller ones, but. Um, St. Brandon's is a group of islands, so it's, a, it's an atoll, probably about 40 to 60 miles long, and there are over 50 little islands there. Now, only a couple of them are big enough to really, you know, like we have one. Our island is called um, St. Raphael, and that's where we, where we have a cabin and where we stay at night, and the guides are there, and there's actually about 20 locals that live there year-round. They're actually fishermen, lobster fishermen and troop fishermen. Um, but there's one other island out there that has a few local fishermen in, on there as well.
0: Wow, okay. And um, so um, is is there just the one island that's that's occupied, or are there several of the islands in the Atoll that are occupied?
1: I would say there's two of them. So the, ours is probably the, the the biggest colony. And, again, we're talking like 20 people that are there. Uh, But I have seen there's one island. We actually do a lot of permit fishing there. One of the islands, it's about maybe 20 miles from the the lodge. And that has a few local fishermen up there and almost like tents and stuff. So I think they go in there temporarily to do their fishing, and then they're out of there.
0: Yeah, yeah. now, um, Zeno in Los Alamitos, California, um, he asks, uh, how was the 26-hour ride from Mauritius to St. Brandon's? Were you confident in the boats used oh. with trek?
1: yeah, well, the first this question I'll answer that it, It's boring because it's uh <laughs> we do it on a fifty three foot or fifty four foot sport fisher, which is it's a pretty darn big boat, but uh you know you you just really have nothing to do. The first time I went, which was in two thousand seventeen, I was like, oh, this boat ride is not going to bother me. I'll bring my computer. I got a lot of writing projects and you know. Photo editing that I'll do, well, you can't because the boat bounces. Even when the seas are, are not rough, it's just it's open ocean, open Indian Ocean. So the boat's going up and down. You're rolling. So it's really hard to do anything. So for me, the hardest part is the boredom. And uh, other than that, no, the ride is not bad at all. It goes very quickly. Um, some of the guys that were on the trip with me, in fact, both trips I've been on, they they take a sleeping pill or they take some seasick sick type stuff, uh and they sleep almost the whole darn time. It's probably next time I go I'm gonna look at it as an opportunity to catch up on lost sleep
0: <laughs> oh yeah yeah well it's um I was wondering even about that big is that um it, it, I guess it's safe enough in, in high seas as well huh or or marginal
1: what would you yeah think they can safe? handle they can handle uh Five meter swells, which is you know that's pretty darn big swells. Um, my both my trips, so two trips out and two trips back. Uh, the first trip out, the second trip out, the first trip back, we had nothing bigger than about two meter swells, which is nothing. It's beautiful. Uh, this last trip coming back, we had three point five, almost fours, and it was it was a little it was a little gnarly. I actually went to my cabin about six hours into the into the trip and uh, climbed in my bunk bed, and I stayed there most of the rest of the trip, which is, yeah, you know, I slept. You know, took an ambient, which may not be for everybody, but, but for me, it, it worked out good, and, you know, I passed 20 hours on the way back. Yeah, um, yeah. As far as safety, you know, at the end of this question, yes, I do feel safe. The captains are superb, really. Uh, you know, you always, I talk to everybody when I'm on these trips, and it's always fun meeting these guys and getting their life history, but they're very experienced. Our captain on this last trip, uh, he had done the crossing 72 times, so he knows what he's doing. And we also have two boats. So the place takes eight anglers, and you always have a guide on each boat going back. So we have two boats with four anglers and a guide. Um, It's kind of nice having the the two boats, because if there was a problem with one boat, and God knows it could happen. I don't think they've had a problem, but it could happen. We could all climb on the other boat, and probably still head to the destination. Or if we're heading back, head back and be fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roy uh, Fukushima in, in Orange, California, asks, uh, I really enjoy hearing about your adventurous global uh, fly fishing expeditions and have some of your fish artworks, especially like the bonefish mugs. What are the accommodations, and are there plenty of fly guides available? So you said you're bringing one guide per four or fly fishers,
1: right? No, it's actually one guide. So when you're actually getting guided, it's one guide per two anglers. So two of the guys stay on the island. They take turns escorting the clients back and forth from Mauritius oh. to St. Brandon. So when you get out there, the way the accommodation is, you've got uh, San Rafael Island, which is, you know, it's a small island, but you, at night I fish my way around it every night, and it takes me about two hours to fish my way around I usually get back at sunset just in time for dinner. But, uh, we have like a little, you know, bed and breakfast type place out there, very simple accommodations but very clean and nice. So there's four rooms, two people to a room. Uh, there's a shared bathroom, so there's two bathrooms for eight people. And uh, the, the eating is right there. We have our own little kitchen so we can get up early in the morning and make coffee before breakfast is served. And uh, then they do serve breakfast. And then at night you come in from fishing, they have hors d'oeuvres, which a lot of times freshes is sashimi. You know, because there's a lot of yellowfin dinner around the island, and the locals go out and get them for us. And then we have a nice dinner, and that's quite often seafood because it's some of the best seafood you could ever ask for. That's all they have out yeah. there.
0: Yeah, 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 sounds good. So air conditioning or not needed?
1: We do have air conditioning. Every room has a fan and an air condition. And uh I don't think we used our air conditioning at all this last trip. It actually gets... You know, when the evening gets down about 75 degrees, which is, for me, very comfortable. Um, Usually just a fan will do it for me. But some people, you know, they love their air conditioning; They'll turn it on the second they get in from fishing, and uh, leave it on until the next morning. I like to kind of get used to the climate I'm in, because I hate walking out of a room all cool and comfortable, and then you get hit with that 95-degree weather, and then you become kind of sluggish when you're on the flats.
0: Yeah, it gets slammed, yeah. Yeah. Uh, We just got a question in on the Internet from... uh... Captain Joyce Rear, Rear uh, probably didn't pronounce it right, but Sanibel Island uh, down in Florida, and she says, asks, uh, what's the prime time of year for permit down there?
1: Well, the best their season is September to December and then April till June. And I've only been in April and May, and uh, my April trip last year was one of their slower permit weeks ever. This year when I actually had some success, and I'm sure we'll get to that, um, they considered it a pretty good week. But hands down, I think their best fishing is in, for a permit is September and October.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, Roy Fukushima um, asks, um, what is the detailed cost of a trip like this from the USA?
1: Well, the way you book it is through Yellow Dog. And uh, the price, I believe, is $8,500, um, at worst nine grand, but I think it's $8,500. And uh, it doesn't matter whether you book with Yellow Dog. It's kind of cool because, you know, you book the Yellow Dog another place, but you're paying the same price you would if you went direct to the place. And that's the nice thing about, uh, you know, booking with Yellow Dog. You send your money to Montana and not to Africa or to some island out in the Indian Ocean. People are a lot more comfortable doing that. And uh, usually on a trip like this, you'll have to put down a 50% deposit when you book it, and that says you're going, and then uh, usually about two months before a trip is when you have to pay the final amount. And that 8500 covers pretty much from Port Louise when you get there to going out to the, to the lodge, your guys, your fishing all week, and then back to Port Louise. You do have to buy your hotel at Port Louise on both ends, and you have to tip the guides. And typical tipping I would say, you know, per if there's two guys at a boat with a guide, that guide's probably gonna end up getting about, you know, seventy five to a hundred dollars from each client. So you gotta budget that in and we always pay in US dollars. Per guides by the way, I'll say are superb, yeah, per client. The guides are really, really good. They're all good friends of mine, but they are they're impressive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and then what about airfare and other transportation to get to that, that
1: point? The well, the airfare, you know, that is. You, you, I usually start, if I commit to a trip, I look at the airfare that day just to see where it's at, you know, so it's in my head that, you know, okay, this is what I saw. Now I'm going to try and beat that in the next couple of months. And my trip last year, I paid $2,100, which is a lot. You know, anytime you get up over 1800 bucks, you better be going a long way. And, of course, you are going a long way. And I'm also leaving from Jacksonville, Wyoming, which is always expensive too. This year, I got a better deal. I got it for eighteen hundred. So you just never know.
0: Yeah, it depends on where you're coming from, and you know, a lot of times you get flights cheaper out of, like for instance, New York City or something, where there's a lot of flights going going east.
2: Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay, and then and um, uh, so that that twenty-six hour boat ride was included in the in the 8,500 as well, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. Um, Scott Nelson asked about what travel credit cards do you use? And I don't know what he's after there, but um, whether uh, you're, he was he's after, you know, which ones give you the best uh, mileage, you know, points and so forth, or which ones are accepted.
1: Uh, in, in the yeah, I'll, I'll give you my whole rundown. First, I think, I think what he's asking is, you know, what card will work over there? Because I will be honest with you, in, in a lot of countries, in Africa particularly, American Express does not get you very far. Maybe in the capital city, when you get off the airplane, in the airports, it works, but a lot of businesses, once you get into rural areas, you gotta have a visa card. So, I bring one, I bring my visa card when I go far away from home. And, uh, but I'm not a Visa guy. I usually use my, my Delta Sky Miles card because it gets me miles with Delta, and I fly almost exclusively with Delta. Okay.
0: Okay, good. Um, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and start talking about some equipment uh, and so forth, and what you, what you brought, what you used, that kind of thing. So hang tight with me, Jeff, here, and we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They're best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I am convinced that Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Jeff Courier about I think Brandon's A Toll. If you'd like to ask Jeff a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, Jeff, uh, you know, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world. I know travel is a big part of it. Uh, anything else uh, you got? happening here
1: in the next few months oh yeah i had i'll be in costa rica in about eight days going down with one of my best friends we're going to try and get a blue marlin on fly Uh, people that follow the blog have probably seen some of my marlin excursion i don't have a i don't have a lot of good luck with marlin but every once in a while someone will come out of the woodwork from somewhere down in central or south america and they'll promise me my marlin so (laughs) we'll see what we'll see what happens see if we can break the marlin curse and uh That'll be a good trip, and then this fall I've got quite a few things, but uh, most of it's pretty close until December. The one that I'm really excited about is I'm heading to Anna Atoll, which is, we're flying to Tahiti, and from there I think it's, you know, another 200-mile small plane flight to get to some crazy atoll. I actually haven't had much chance to research. I'm going with a few friends that that say they have it dialed and asked me if I wanted to go, and you know what my answer would be. Yes, I'll be there.
0: Yeah, yeah, Cool. Yeah, I have a, a friend who actually sailed around the world, uh, uh, and when they um, were in the South Pacific, because of their sailboat, they went to some of these uh, tolls islands, and so forth that were kind of off the beaten track, and they said it was just incredible, incredible the amount of fish that were uh, out there, and, you know, just getting away from, like, the tourist areas. I guess it's just incredible. So, uh, so hopefully you'll have a great time down there, yeah. All right, yeah, well, you. um, uh, what's your website address, Jeff? So in case people want to find out about your adventures, your blog, your artwork, all that stuff, where do they go?
1: Well, my blog's built right into my website, and my website is jeffcurrier.com, so that's easy. You just have to spell my last name right, which is C-U-R-R-I-E-R. And, there you go. Uh, yeah. I come up pretty easy. If you if you type in a weird fish on Google, you're probably going to end up on one of my blogs anyway. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. So jeffcurrier.com, folks, if you want to check Jeff's blog out, he writes uh, actively about all his fly fishing adventures, so you can really get a good feel of, of what's happening on the trip. So uh, check it out. Check it out. Um, okay, so um, we're going down there to fish a bunch of different species. We'll talk about that in a, in a minute. But uh, So w- what's your arsenal that you're taking down there in the way of rods? What size, weight rods are you taking down?
1: You know, St. Brandon's a little easier than a lot of destinations because, you know, and I know we're going to talk about species. There's not as many different species as you find, say, in, like, the Seychelles or down in Belize. So you can narrow it down a little bit. And uh, the, the focus species are really bonefish permit and then a few different types of smaller trevally and then the big guys. So what I brought this year, I brought one eight weight, which is kind of my my bonefish rod. You know, I always have, like, a crazy Charlie or a gotcha on that rod. And uh, when I see a big bonefish, it's going. But I brought two nine-weights and two twelve 12-weights because those are my bread-and-butter rods. I use nine-weights for big bonefish, and I use nine-weights when I'm fishing permit. And this year, in fact, both years, really, I've, I had my heart set on catching a yellow permit. So those nine-weights were both rigged in the boat at all times. And uh, even though you wait in the flats, you know, we always have the boat there to hold our gear. And I brought two 12-weights also because there are some big, giant trevally there, and I mean really big. State shells, you get more giant trevally, but they're in that, you know, they measure those guys by centimeters, and typically they're 80 to 110 centimeters. A lot of the uh, trevally, the giant trevally they've caught in St. Brandon's, and they don't catch many, but they're huge, and they almost are always over 100 centimeters. I think they got a fish that was 130 centimeters this year. So oh. those 12-weights are for those guys, the only way you're going to get them. So are you
0: bringing the extra rods as backups or, I suppose, backups as well as uh, rigging them differently so you can
1: grab Yeah, yep, cast? they're backups also. So, like, I mentioned five rods there, but I probably didn't bring five reels. I actually brought a reel for the 8-weight, one reel for the 12-weight, so that extra rod was a backup if I broke it on a GT, which certainly can happen. So the only rod that I really brought two reels for was that, that the nine-weight rigs.
0: And that was mainly because you were focused on the permit, and you wanted to be rigged up differently? or?
1: Yeah, I just thought if, you know, sometimes those fish come into you so quickly that uh, you show your fly to them three or four times, and they don't eat it, and you want to make a quick change. But if anybody's ever tried to change a fly when you got a big permit in front of you, it can be a little nerve-wracking, and the hands shake, and the eyes aren't as good if they used to be, so it's really nice to just pick up that other rod with the other crab on it and try it right away, and yeah. and essentially that extra nine weight becomes a backup for me too. If I break my nine weight, I've got that extra that extra nine yeah. weight.
0: Yeah, yeah, And rods can break so easily for many different reasons. <laughs> so, um, and then what type of line did you bring down? Was were you consistent across all all three uh, rods? Particular brand, particular yeah.
1: type. Pretty close. Cool. So. It's flats fishing, so 90%, in fact, 99% of my fishing on flats where I'm waiting, and it's weightable flats, I should make that clear, uh, is floating lines. So my favorite line for, like, my 8 and my 9 weight would be the Scientific Angler's Amplitude Grand Slam line. It's just a great, great line for making short, powerful casts to, say, a quick-moving target, which would be a permit. A lot of times they come into your zone, they're out of your zone so quick, and... You know, you're walking along and you just have eight feet of fly line out the tip of the rod, but you got to make a 60-foot cast. So you need to be able to do that in less than three, less than four false casts. You know, if you can do it in two, that's the best. And that line helps you do that because of that short head. Um, but on the 12-weight, I don't particularly like that line for fishing giant trevally because, you know, I'm throwing a bigger fly and I'm also going to be yanking on that fish so hard. Um, those big big trevally. If you hook them and you don't put an unbelievable amount of pressure on them, they will take you to coral, they will take you to some snag, or they'll get so far away, so deep in your backing, you'll have no chance. So kind of the new way of fighting them these days is they take the fly, and you try not to let them have any line at all, which is impossible. But with the drag completely cranked up on my bower reel, a big GT will make it about 100 feet at the most, and then it he, he stops. Now, I'm going to go with him. I've been pulled off the beach before, and I've been pulled, you know, (laughs) almost out to sea a couple times, but, uh, you know, when you're you're putting that much pressure on a fish, you've got, obviously, you're cheating a little bit in your leader. We use straight under 50-pound test, and we need a fly line that's not going to break, and most fly lines are 30 to 40, even maybe some are 50-pound test strength. The line I use is the Scientific Angler's Big Water Taper, which is... uh, 100-pound core, so it's almost impossible to break that line. And you can fight those fish and land them in, you know, 15 minutes or less. seen some South Africans land those fish in, like, eight minutes. It's incredible.
0: Hmm. Now, is that scary. a oh, – Pardon me? I
1: <laughs> said it's scary.
0: <laughs> oh, 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 scary. Okay. Um Is that a, a line you would use for large tarpon as well?
1: Yeah, I think quite a few people are going to like to use it for tarpon because that technique is also of, of fighting fish is being used in tarpon as well. Um, where I thought the first time really used was I was in Gabon a couple of years ago, which is a country on the western side of Africa, and I was there to catch a fish called the, the threadfin. Um, but most of the South African guys I was with who had, became great friends, we had such a good time, they were all there to land a tarpon off the beach, and I watched a 200-pounder get landed by Arno Vandernest, and uh, it was a sight to behold. And uh, thank God for the super strong line, or he wouldn't have been able to do it. But he he had it, and it worked, and we got that fish in in probably about 20 minutes.
0: So when you're finding big fish like that, what's the technique? Is it it the down and dirty, keeping the rod low? Um, And like you said, drag, uh, just crank down? Yep, so the drag
1: drag is it's cranked down, and you almost can't hold your rod, like, up in the air and put a bend in it when a fish is pulling that hard. He's going to pull you towards him and get the rod down. So you're almost pointing straight at the fish, but, of course, that's probably not a good thing either. So I kind of, like, lift my my wrist a little bit and kind of put a bend. It just explains it, but I put a bend in the butt section of my rod. And uh, so I'm almost pointing at the fish, but there's a little bit of an arc way down low in the rod, and that's just enough to, you know, keep you from even breaking a heavy tippet. I mean, a 100-pound tippet can still break on one of these fish. They're so amazing. They shake their heads so fast and so violently they can break anything. But that little bit of bend to the rod helps absorb that and helps you turn the fish. I think most people know I'm a Winston guy, and those rods do have a little flex all the way down to the cork, which I like a lot.
0: What? Um, um, how did you? What about your terminal tackle? You just mentioned hundred-pound tippet for. Uh, is that what you normally use for the big travalis?
1: Yeah. So for GTs, I'm using straight 150-pound test, about a six-foot leader, and uh, I, I have most of those fly lines you buy. They come with a loop already built into them, and I used to cut the loops off and replace them with my own loop. But I actually had a great opportunity to go to the Scientific Anglers factory a couple of years ago and uh, test loops on their machine and see how they're made. And now I use the loops right that come right with the fly line. And I still I need some wood here. I haven't had one break on me yet. And uh, that says a lot for it. So 150-pound yeah. test, loop-to-loop to, loop to my fly line, six feet, and then I do a loop knot. And I like the non-slip monoloop to my fly and ready to go. That's not how I fish permit stuff. In the smaller okay. flatfish, that's really just for giant, crazy fish that yeah. have to be landed before they get the coral.
0: So then uh, talk about uh, the same kind of terminal setup you use for bonefish and permit.
1: Okay. For those guys, I um, usually get a, a pre-made fluorocarbon leader. And again, I'm a scientific angler's guy. And for a permit, I usually do 20-pound tests. So I'll do a 12-foot leader for 20 pounds. And... Um, Sometimes I'll cut it back a little shorter, and it probably realistically it's probably like 22-pound test. But if I get refusals, and uh, I noticed the first permit caught on our trip was caught by one of the owners of of the atoll fishing operation there, Ryan Hammond, and I was asking him a million questions, you know, okay, what to do, what to do, what were are using? He was using 16-pound test. And so I dropped the next day. I actually took a 9-foot, 20-pound fluorocarbon leader and added three feet of 16-pound test to it. And on the third day, I got my first yellow permit. So they definitely, they're definitely a little tippet shy. Even though that place gets no pressure at all, they're just big eyes, smart. They can see, they can see some foul play.
0: Yeah, those permit are a different animal, aren't they? (laughs) All the way around. Yeah, yeah. And then what about
1: bonefish? Bonefish, I use the same leader. The bonefish seem to be a little less selective. And uh, realistically, I'm probably always fishing that 12-foot, 20-pound tippet. The bonefish, by the way, and I know we're going to talk again, are huge there. So that really helps to have that heavy tippet.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Ari in Newbury Park uh, wrote in. He was asking about how many rods, reels, fly boxes you brought. Um, So we've already Mm -hmm. talked about rods and reels. What do you bring in the way of fly boxes and flies? And he also asked, um, you know, do you travel with and how do you get them through the airports?
1: Okay, Um, my flies, my rods, my reels all go as checked baggage. Two reasons. Number one, um, if you're going through a European airport, a lot of times, particularly in Paris and Amsterdam, you'll have to go through security again. So you enter Europe, you get your passport stamped, and then you kind of have to go through another system there and, they do not like fly rods. I don't know what it is. They have to see them, but they. I, I was going to Egypt, Nile Perch, fishing a few years ago, and I actually missed my flight because I, Air France sent me all the way out of the airport to recheck in and check my rods through. And that's all it took one time to have to miss my flight to Cairo and then in the middle of the night take another flight to Cairo. My buddies were all happy and nestled in their hotels, and I'm getting off the plane at 3 in the morning in Cairo, which is not a nice thing to do. So now I check my I check all that stuff and knock on wood you know I've had good luck with my flights my stuff ninety nine percent of the time makes it there um, back to his question about what I bring so one of the things people often do on saltwater trips especially first timers is they bring too many flies um, you're not going to use a ton of flies because your guy's going to say that's the one that works, and that's what we're going to use and especially permit fishing where you don't hook that many fish on a trip. You may not hook any. You're really going to go through maybe four or five flies the whole time. Now, good bone fishing, that might be a little different. You might need, you know, 18 flies the whole trip. But what I always tell my clients is bring a big box with all your flies in it. So I bring a Cliff Bugger Beast Junior, not the Beast, the Junior, and it's pretty loaded. And that box will never see the salt water. It will never leave my room because once those flies go in the salt, even the salt air, a lot of times those flies, when you get home, will start to rust. So those stay in my room, and then I feed off those, so I have two small boxes that I bring with me on the flats. And every night I reload it with fresh flies if if needed.
0: And um, the flies that uh, you take off your line don't go back in the box, right?
1: They do not go back in the box. I have, like, a little contraption that... uh, a buddy of mine gave me, and I just throw the fly in that, and when I get home at night, I put them in the sink and just rinse them off, and then I dry them, and uh, amazing. Even though it's super warm in these tropical places, stuff does not dry very well, so keep it in yeah. your air-conditioned room that night or put it in front of the fan to get it dry, and then the next day I'll I'll take it back out there. Usually they fluff right. back up nice. And All water flies are expensive. I'm not a very good fly tire, so I do I do try to take care of my flies very carefully.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um Ari also asked about um extra insurance for your gear. Do you carry any extra insurance besides what, uh, what the airline offers?
1: I do not, but uh remember I'm probably a little different human being. I'm probably not paying for the equipment like other people are <laughs> okay. that's my honest that's the honest answer I'm sticking yeah. to it. but i you know but I again I've had very good luck. You know and I think everybody knows we've all had bad luck once or twice and then when you fight with him you never win anyway. So I don't know if I'd pay the extra.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, an interesting thing happened to me when I went to Belize this year. Um and I learned from this <laughs> this experience. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to handle it next time, but uh checked checked on my baggage to Belize City and then if you know you have to take a, uh, you know, uh, a small plane down to wherever you're going in Belize from there. We were going to Placentia. So um, and then I see that um, as I'm sitting on the plane and they're loading the baggage, that they start loading the baggage, and then uh, some of the bags did not get on the plane. They take them away. Mm-hmm. Well, one of them was my fly-fishing gear bag. <laughs> and, uh, Brutal. So then I get down to Placentia, and then within a half an hour I'm on a boat out to an island, without my gear and so that was a bit disconcerting it, it it came the next day and then was brought out by my guide but um it was like uh evidently on the small planes as soon as they're they reach a weight limit then they don't take any more bags so half your bags can go and half of them cannot you know may not go so um has yeah. did that ever happened to you or how do you handle something oh, like yeah. that
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely been, you know, a few places where my stuff didn't make it. Um, on a trip, usually a trip that's organized, say you went on a Yellow Dog trip or, you know, one of my hosted trips with Yellow Dog, I'm going to have stuff for you, you know. So if your stuff doesn't make it, you're going to be brokenhearted to be wearing my shorts instead of your own, I'm sure. But, you know, we're going to get it worked <laughs> out. That's a, nice, that's a nice thing about being in a big group trip. Um, right. The other thing I do, so a lot of times, like, if I really am going somewhere and it's just me and Granny, you know, my wife or something, and we're going a long way, I split everything. So I mentioned my rods. I had an 8-weight, two nines, two twelves. Well, I've got two bags, and there's going to be one 9-weight and one 12 in each one. So if one bag doesn't make it, at least I have a good chance that, you know, one of the bags will make it and I'll have what I need at least for the first yeah. few days until my luggage actually gets there. So, and I'll do that with flies, too. So I'll have my big master box of flies in one bag, and then I put my two small boxes, which are, are pretty well stocked for the first few days of fishing anyway, in the other bag. And I'm very careful yeah. about that. I split my clothes. I split everything right down the middle. My South offerings, when I got to St. Brands, like, they're like, geez, Curry, you got so much gear. Why do you need so much gear? I said, well, I'm coming a long way, and if something doesn't make it, that's why I have two bags. And the one, you know, one bag I never even had to open the whole trip just that they both made it, but it was a backup.
0: Yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay, uh, one other question here, talking about gear, and then we'll get into fish and fishing. Uh, what um, You said that um, you're fishing with a boat, so you've got a boat handler, and I take it a guide and a boat handler when you're out? Is that how it works?
1: Yes. Yep, the and guides then? are South Africans, so they're all, you know, very good English-speaking guides, and uh, they have a ton of experience. They're all captains. Most of them grew up in the saltwater their whole life. Um, and you're you're going in a boat, not a real fancy flats boat like you would fish, say, if you went to turn flats in Belize. You're in basically a boat that's transporting you from flat to flat. So 90% okay. of the fishing, in fact, really 95% of the fishing is actually done on foot. You need a really good quality pair of flats booties. Um, for this trip because there's a lot of you know coral and there's dangerous snails you can step on and you know all kinds of things you don't want to get hurt and ruin your trip on
0: mm-hmm. so uh, they're holding your excess gear but what do you take uh, and your extra rods I take it uh, or are you carrying an extra rod with you and what do you have uh, do you have a backpack how are you rigged up yep out flat
1: yep I have if we're going to do an epic walk, which usually you know you're always going to discuss what you're going to do the night before with your guide, and they're going to give an option like, hey guys, we can go here. We haven't been here in three weeks. It's going to be a long walk to hit the tides just right. We're going to have to walk. You know, it's going to be a six mile walk, and we're going to we're going to start walking at nine in the morning, and we're going to not be done until three in the afternoon. So you need to have your big pack with you because we're not going to get back to the boat. They're going to go back and get the boat and meet you at the end, but. You know, you're going to be actually out there walking for six hours. So I bring the Sims dry pack. I can fit my camera in there. I can fit a bottle of water. I can fit a few snacks. Um, usually the guide will carry your lunch for you. And, um, but I have everything I need, including always a rain jacket, by the way. We get a lot of rainstorms down in St. Brandon's. But if we're just going to go out and hit a perfect tide for like two, three hours, and go back to the boat, then I use a fanny pack, you know, just a hip pack and uh, just bring those two fly boxes, maybe even just one of those fly boxes, a couple spools of tippet in my shorts, and ready to go. Keep it real lightweight.
0: Okay. Okay, good. All right. Uh, We'll be right back, folks. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, then we'll get into some fishing techniques and fish and all the exciting stuff. So hang with us in just a few minutes. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, They derive as much pleasure from helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing, and snorkeling, while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved in the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly-fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, it's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Jeff Curry about St. Brandon's Atoll. If you'd like to ask Jeff a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box on our homepage to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, so, Jeff, let's talk about the species that are available. You mentioned a few of them. What are the top targets you have at uh, St. Brandon's?
1: Okay, so the, the main reason people go to St. Brandon's are Three different fish, bone fish, but not just regular bone fish. It, St. Brandon's has some of the biggest bone fish in the world. You will see a fish over eight pounds every single day. You're probably going to see a fish over ten pounds every single day, and there's numerous ones. I think it's the best bone fishing I've ever experienced. You never go very far without at least having an opportunity to fish two a bone fish, and their average size is five to six pounds. The other fish that people go specifically for is the yellow permit, better known as the Indo-Pacific Permit. And its real name is actually the snub-nosed pompano. But, of course, that's not quite the most glamorous name. People probably wouldn't travel halfway around the world if they didn't realize the snub-nosed pompano was a yellow permit. And then there's uh, the giant trevally, which we talked a little bit about. And uh, there's actually a lot of different species of trevally there, which are great fun. They have the, the bluefin trevally. They have the island trevally, which is actually the yellow dot, and they have the brassy trevally, which is actually the green spot, and they have the golden trevally. And if people go to my blog, you'll see pictures of every one of those species. And in particular, that yellow dot is a fish that I didn't catch until my first trip in 2017 to St. Brandon's, and it's a stunning, stunning stunning-looking trevally, just a fantastic fish to catch.
0: Oh, and uh, the ones you were most interested in uh, going there were the bonefish and the permit. Well, that first,
1: yeah. Well, that first year I went in 2017. I just wanted to get as many different species as possible for my list, and I was able to catch you know a few of those, a few of those trevally, like the island trevally, the yellow dot, and the sea green spot. I had never caught before, so I knocked those off. Uh, but I also was pretty adamant about getting that yellow permit and. Uh, People think that just because you go somewhere, you catch it. Well, in 2017, let's just say it was a long plane ride home because I didn't get my yellow permit. And uh, even though I knew it was the best place to go in the world for them, I didn't get one. Now, this year, it was a different story. I went there exclusively for a yellow permit, and I ended up catching two, and two good ones. So I was super stoked.
0: And, um, and what about the bonefish? well
1: yeah there's incredible bone fishing too now i was so dedicated to getting that big permit or getting a yellow permit that the first few days of this trip i actually i didn't cast the bone fish hardly at all i maybe catch one every couple hours just for a little action but you have to be dedicated for permit when you're permit fishing and uh but i will admit after i caught that that permit i enjoyed the bone fishing of st brannan's and on the same day the same day that I got my first permit, which was the third day, my first yellow permit, I got an 11-pound bonefish, which was my first bonefish over 10 pounds. So I, that's probably my one of my best days of fishing of my life as far as, you know, accomplishing something I really wanted to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. So your plan for the week was uh, the second trip was to focus on permit until you got that. Yep, permit, right? I wanted
1: <laughs> I wanted him. And, uh, man, it would have been an awful flight home if I didn't get him this time. My South African friends that own the place, they were so they're so good to me. I mean, they're like, okay, that's where the permit probably are. We're gonna let you in there first. Go have at it, and um, gave me the you know the fly they thought would work, and sent me on my way. Um, a couple times the boys would stay right with me, you know, helping me uh, find the fish. So uh, it was great. Of course, after I caught my first one, that it was all hands on deck. Everybody just kind of went to the best spots. I lucked into another big one on the maybe second to last day. Got a really nice fish, almost 14 pounds, which for those yellow permit, that's a big one. They don't seem to get yeah. as big as the Atlantic's.
0: Yeah. Um, Roy uh, Fukushima asked another question. He says, describe a typical day on the water. So you've kind of done that in bits and pieces, but I'm getting the impression that uh, sometimes you had a guide standing next to you and other times you're out there solo. So how did that that work?
1: Yeah, well, both my trips, I went as a guest of my South African friends, and they're fishing, too. You know, they don't get to, the owners don't get out there more than once every year, some of them even once every couple years. So we're fishing together. I was, you know, the yellow permit thing was an exception where they're walking, you know, with me to help me get that fish. But a typical trip for your average person is you get up at 6 in the morning and, that's you know, get your gear together, have a cup of coffee. 7 o'clock is breakfast, and the second you're ready to leave, your guides are ready. So I woke my breakfast down. I'm done by like 7.05, and I go out, meet my guide, and we head on out to the flats. And we have a pre-plan. So the night before, we'll also, you know, plan a strategy based on tides and what fish we're after. So you might go for a 10-minute boat ride. You might even go shorter than that. Sometimes we started fishing right there from the, the island based on the tides, or you may take You know, if the tides aren't good early in the morning, you'll go for an hour boat ride and then spend the rest of the day fishing your way back to camp. But it's a long day from about 7:15 in the morning till you know 4:30 in the afternoon.
0: Yeah, and um, you're moving to different water every every day, pretty much. I mean, is there that much water to fish there? Trying to yes,
1: uh, they they rotate it big time. Yeah, they rotate it among guides and rotate around among the a guest. So, every guest is going to see every spot at least once and uh, if one's not fishing well, they'll delete it and go to somewhere else. Um, there's plenty of options for that and if one is extraordinarily good, then maybe you get to fish that more than once, even though we like to see new water all the time. If somebody says there's a ton of permit here, Curry, we should probably go there again, I'm going to say yeah, let's go there again.
0: Yeah. Um, what's the waiting like there? Sand? Coral rubble, uh, what's, what's the general bottom like? It's
1: everything. It's, it's everything. There's some amazing sand flats where, I mean, you you think you could be in a pair of flip-flops and you probably could, but then all of a sudden you have, uh, you know, a hundred foot stretch where you're crossing some, you know, coral, broken coral and sharp rocks, then a little turtle grass. It's, it's got everything, but there are a lot of big, beautiful sand flats. Um, some of our best bone fishing was like sand flats with just little random patches of uh, grass. So the bonefish were super easy to see because they were always crossing those sandy spots. And believe it or not, not knee-deep. A lot of it was like literally halfway between your knee and your ankle, you know, wow. a foot of water at the most.
2: And it was so wow. cool.
1: Like that giant bonefish I got, I got that fish in knee-deep water. And by the way, um, when, you know, I've caught a lot of bonefish in the, you know, 7, 8-pound range over the years. A difference in fight. A lot of times you get a super huge fish in a certain species and they don't fight as much because it's like the grandfather. That's the way I've always looked at it. But a bonefish over 10 pounds is an experience that you will not believe. I have not had line ripped from me like that in a long time. And uh, when you get that fish in your hand, you know, an 8-pounder is big, but when soon as you, it's weird, soon as you break that 10-pound range, there's so much fish there. It's, I mean, I was I was electrified. I mean, it was like catching my first yellow permit. It was almost the same impact of how cool it was to get that big bonefish.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's keep continuing talking about bonefish first then. Um, Zeno in Los Alamitos, he was asking about the average size. I think he already said that, six to eight pounds.
1: Um, so and, average is five to six.
0: Five to six. And uh, the yeah, largest that you caught was, would you say, 11?
1: 11. Yep, yeah. just under. He was, like, was like 10 and three quarters.
0: Were they difficult to catch? What were the challenges? No,
1: no. They're um, the challenging part is landing them. You'll have a. It seems like a lot of the biggest bonefish we find are kind of right on the edge of the flats and the edge of like dropping into four feet of water and a zillion coral heads. So you've got to you've got to hold that fish and kind of steer them. You know, you can't just. Lock up on a bonefish because it'll break you off, especially because you're going to use 20 pound test. But you can, using the rod, when you get with the rod, you can kind of, that fish starts running towards the coral, you can steer him a little. You can kind of make him change his mind and go further back on the flat. And one of the things I often do is when the fish is in that situation, once I get him turned and he's going in the flat, I'll ease up on him to let him take off in the middle of the flat and I'll walk towards him before I put a lot of pressure on him again because I don't want him to get angry and go back to those coral heads again.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: that was the challenge, huh? Battle the challenge there, but they do take flies very well, not too hard to catch.
0: And what flies worked best for you there?
1: Um, you know, we, a lot of times we're using the crabs, same crabs we use for permit, um, and they, they crush them. Those big bonefish in particular love a crab. Uh, on my eight weight, I mentioned I brought one eight weight. It's like my exclusive bonefish rod. On that rod, I added it. Uh, Kind of a tan crazy Charlie. About us. it was a big one too, like a size four. We used, you know in Belize, I use very small bonefish flies, like size eights, two sixes. But over in the Indian Ocean, I'm typically using size fours.
0: Okay, okay. Um, and you said most of the time you're you're fishing for them in, in sand or turtle grass, that kind of bottom, right? Um, That's right. Any different in approach or presentation that, that you use there that was different from other parts of the world?
1: Nope, the same old approach, you know, try to, you know, land your fly gently, you know, which quite often times a lot of people don't realize it, you know, especially a really good caster, they do this beautiful double haul and they whip out 80 feet of line, but when that loop is so tight it turns over, sometimes that fly splats on the water really hard, can spook a fish. A lot of times I'll actually ease up, first thing I do is try to get closer than normal and I might ease up and even do kind of a little bit of a sidearm cast so that fly almost floats and drops gently in front of the fish but I want to get it close to them. I like to land it you know no less than than two feet away usually I'm going to try and land it about a foot away from them, and get a let it sink to bottom and then give it an immediate strip make it look alive
0: yeah and you don't have far to sink it sounds like <laughs> all the shallow water no the shallow water,
1: huh? no yeah. your flies are not too heavy that's for sure your crabs are but not your not your bonefish flies in general yeah
0: Anything else uh, about the bonefish that that you want to mention while we're talking about them?
1: I'll just say um, I've seen a lot of bonefish around the world, and I've, you know, a lot, been a lot of places where you know the claim is it's the best bone fishing in the world, and, and I've seen incredible bone fishing in Belize and the Bahamas, just extraordinary. But this place blows my mind. I mean, mm-hmm. it's that good. It's the size of the fish and the amount of fish. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah, and. Uh... Not getting the same pressure they get in some of these other parts of the world, I take it too
1: yeah, huh? no, very little pressure, short season, and you know only eight anglers a week for you know a couple of months,
0: yeah, yeah, dispersed over a wide area, it sounds like, yeah, so um, okay, let's talk about the the permit. Um, Kevin in Wilson, Wyoming uh, asked what what are the important differences between the type this type of permit and permit in other locations. And then along with that, I got um, from Captain Joyce here in Sanibel. Um, she wrote in on the Internet, uh, what's the difference, uh, same thing, compared to the Florida permit and uh, the similar type crab patterns we use in Florida, do they work? Um, and then she's talking about are they tailing or cruising or what, what's their habits? So maybe you can talk about all that and what how these yellow permit are different than the permit we're used
1: yeah. to in Atlantic? First of all, the the fish themselves, their behavior, is I think almost like, exactly the same. I would say exactly the same, but I'm sure there's some guys that are super pro-permit guys and they've noticed something different. But for me, they're super finicky, super smart, um, super selective, and they fight the same way. They absolutely smoke you and try to get to uh, get to the coral and break you off. Um there are differences in the fish themselves, though. The yellow permit versus the Atlantic permit, the yellow permit is a smaller species, um, at least what we've seen. I know they've got some fish over 20 pounds landed there at St. Brands, but, uh you know, you start following the, the trails of good Atlantic permit fishing and you see fish 30 to 40 pounds, them, and then that hasn't been done with the yellow permit. Are you guys still there? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I heard my phone made a funny beep, and I didn't want to make sure it wasn't disconnected.
2: No, nope, i um, still hearing the, you. The yep. appearance,
1: good. The appearance of the fish is the shape is exactly the same. Um, exactly the same. But the black on the Atlantic permit, you don't find on the the Indo-Pacific permit, and you don't find the yellow on the Atlantic permit. The The Indo-permits, which, by the way, the real name of this fish is snubnose dart or snubnose pompano. I think I mentioned that at the beginning, but in case anybody tuned in, exact same fish, but it is truly a, a pompano. But um, they are they are very yellow in color. It's, you got to see the pictures of them on my blog. They're so beautiful, it's incredible. But you know why they're yellow? Because when you start walking those flats the grasses and the the weeds in the water have the same exact yellow tint about them. When the light hits them, they look the same color as the permit, or the permit looks the same color. And they can be very, very hard to see. Um, I think a lot of people have experienced that with Atlantic permit. They're hard to see. Even though that black sticks out, that tail is really, they can make it wiggle and move and sway, and it looks like turtle grass. And all of a sudden, there's a fish right in front of you, and you blew it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I experienced that down in Belize last time I was down there, the the guides see stuff that <laughs> even yeah. when they point it out, I'm still not seeing, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. It to be on the water uh, 300 days a year to, to see these fish, I'll tell you. Um, the um, yes, uh, I don't know if I read this or what. I, where I got this idea. Maybe I'm all wrong, but um, don't don't the permit and, and the Atlantic permit, too, don't they turn color when they get excited or something? Is it is I off base there, or is that
1: something you've I mean I think uh, i something I haven't noticed in permit so much. I mean definitely, there are a lot of species out there, like a you know a Dorado or mahi mahi, those things light up like crazy or a wahoo. I see it a lot in blue water fish, but I haven't really noticed it with permit, but that's not to say that they might throw, brighten up their black you know colors or their yellows. I don't know when I'm seeing those fish on the flats, those yellow permit, before they even see me or have any idea I'm there, they look yellow. They look the they same. They do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I haven't seen a change.
0: So and all the same challenges were there with any other permit, it sounds like. They're just different.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I'm not a permit guy. I'm not. I mean, I love them, and I've, I've caught my share. In fact, I've done really good this last year. I've had some good luck with the Atlantic permit and good luck with the yellow permit. But I have had my butt handed to me as much as anybody else out there. In fact, it may be worse sometimes. I, I had a great trip to Belize in December with uh, Will Flack, who's a good buddy of mine, and he's one of the best permit guys I've ever been with. And guess what? Six days of fishing, we got blanked. We hooked three, landed zero. It was a tough trip. Oh, yeah. So that
0: makes me they feel have good, my
1: number John. many times. <laughs> <laughs> I think I made a lot of people feel good. That's why I wanted to tell them that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's really hard to come back for, from a trip and they say, well, what did you catch? Well, I had some on and a lot got off and uh, oh, really? And then then everybody kind of like gets disinterested, right? I mean, non-fly fishers, right? Uh, it's, they uh, want to it's, see pictures. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, so, what type of water did you find them in? Was it similar to the bonefish? Like turtle grass or? Yeah, them, you'd so.
1: find small ones. You might find a you know, five to six pounder in the exact same shallow stuff that we're talking about for the bonefish, but on average, the perm are going to be a little deeper, so they're almost always going to be in that knee-to-thigh to deep water, and um, that first one I caught, he was probably right in that, you know, just above the knee, and he was tailing really good, which by the way, they tail just like the Atlantic Permit, so again, very, very similar fish, and uh, there were three of them, and I dropped my fly in front of them. And then, uh, typically, what happens? is All tails go down. And you're hoping they're following your fly. And I had glare, so I couldn't see. But I stripped, and I felt the, I felt the tug. And I was like, Oh my God, I missed him! And I stripped one more time, and then another, maybe when another one grabbed it, maybe the same one came and grabbed it. Anyway, I got that fish. But my second permit, when I got in the second to last day, that was much deeper water. Um, I was waiting for the fish to come on the flat in front of me, and there was a little bit of a drop-off. Maybe it was maybe four feet deep, going all the way out a long way. And uh, I saw this fish three times, but he never came into the, the two-foot of water. He stayed out in that four-foot, and it was super, super hard to see. So the third time, I just got aggressive, and I threw out uh, threw out my crab sink at the bottom one strip, and he pulverized it. It was It was awesome. That never happens to me never have permit pulver as a fly and this fish just destroyed it. I couldn't, couldn't hmm. do anything but hook It was great. So lucky.
0: Do you fish the tide similarly that you do in Belize and do you have a similar window of time to you know when they come up onto the flats or is it a longer or yeah. shorter?
1: It depends on the flats but um, you know the best flats are usually it's a short period of time so we'll know they're going to be there for two hours and, and then they're gone so you're trying to get it done in that time and some of that stuff is way over my head. That's why you know you have to have a guide. They know. They know.
0: Yeah. What did you do uh, again? You know, have my experience last time in Belize is yeah, you have that two-hour frame, and then then you're you know you're kind of there's, there's no fish. <laughs> so what did you do there? Did you go fish for other fish, or is there another flat you can fish that the tide's coming up on? How did you manage your yep. time?
1: Yep, we can go to usually if one flat is, uh, you know, only good for two hours, and then when it starts to taper off, we if we if you know where you're going and know the way the water and the way the tides react and, you know, a few miles away, you might be able to go another flat and get another hour in. So like the days when we might start right next to camp, start fishing, we'd fish that flat till 10 in the morning, and then it starts to taper off, and then we go another two miles and catch the last hour at the next flat, and then the last hour, and we can actually – kind of scrape out a good five to six hours of good permit fishing. And when it's okay. completely done, and it, no doubt it is, that's when you just got to change gears. You've got to, you know, okay, I'm going to go bone fishing or, you know, let's go catch some of the, the trevally species. Usually the bonefish and the permit are pretty closely related to, you know, their activity being good. So then we would go chase the, the bluefin trevallies and the yellow dots and just have a great time. I love those things.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, so let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about trevallies and also that one you put on your bucket list and caught, uh, that uh, Picasso trigger fish. So a little uh of the Indian Ocean, right? So uh, hang with me. We'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to all fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho, and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware and New York, uh, and funds projects and collects valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Jeff Courier about St. Brandon's Atoll. If you'd like to ask Jeff a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay. Um, so I'm just reading here, Jeff, some of the questions uh, that have come in here. Uh, okay. Um we didn't talk really, uh, let me just finish up with the, the permit about flies, um, crabs, pretty much, anything specific, flies we know that you use work?
1: Yeah. Yep, I don't go anywhere in the world permit fishing without a merkin crab, and it doesn't matter if it's down in Belize or if it's in the Indian Ocean, that fly flat out works everywhere, and I caught my first permit on this trip on the merkin. But I've been fishing, thanks to my friend Will Flack, who owns uh you know, uh, uh, the Belize Permit Club down there in in southern Belize and Hopkins Belize, he turned me on to the Bower Crab in December, and that's what I caught my second permit on. And I loved, I especially loved it. I love the way the fly looks in the water. I loved the way, you know, I hooked those three fish in December on it. And uh, the best part, though, my African friends were looking at it like, what is that thing Currier is using, which is always fun for me, because I'm confident yeah. in it, and they weren't, and then I made it work. So that's one of my favorite flies. Yeah, permit. yeah. But
0: yeah, good. it's
1: the same. Okay.
0: Um, some of the questions came in on the Internet. Lance Tomar in Canyon City, Colorado uh, says, the atoll is very big. Did you fish mainly on the lodge end, or did you cover the far reaches of the atoll as well? Seems like it would be a long boat ride.
1: Yeah, we have the option of doing a you know a two-hour boat ride and, and touching up on some of the, the water that really rarely gets touched. But two-hour boat ride is a big chunk out of your day. If you go two hours, you're gonna to have to take two hours to get back. So oh, wow. we pretty much we pretty much stay on that that side close to the lodge. So an hour boat ride is about as far as we go. There's a few exceptions, you know. Some one of the guides might have a real good hunch about a permit being somewhere where nobody's been in like three weeks or something like that. But an hour or less is typically the boat ride.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, Lance also asked, uh, you didn't say in your blog on St. Brandon's, was there any chance of some offshore dredging, like for dog tooth?
1: Yeah, no. Lance has dredged with me in the Seychelles, so I'll just, oh. I know what he's imagining. <laughs> yeah, the, the dredging in the Seychelles is incredible. The dredging in St. Brandon's is not that good, and um, a couple of my friends did it on that first trip. And the reason it's not good, they actually have an agreement with these local fishermen. You guys stay out the flats and uh fish the blue water and we won't mess with you and you're fishing in the blue water. So their blue water fishing, as far as deep water fishing, you know, for groupers and snappers and you know, all kinds of crazy wrasses, it's it's not that great so we don't do it. You can do it, catch a few fish, but he'd be disappointed after what he saw in the seashells. (laughs) <laughs> but the migratory fish, like yellowfin, tuna, mahi, um, the billfish, it can be absolutely incredible at St. Brandon's, but they really don't have the boats to go out and do that, you know, with a fly rod.
0: Okay. All right. Um, sorry, Lance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's talk about that Picasso trigger fish, because uh, you seem pretty excited about that on your blog. And uh, So that was one on the bucket list you wanted to, to catch, too, and you did, right?
1: Yeah, he was, and one of the reasons it's a very small fish. You know, it's a, you could call it the pumpkin seed of the Indian Ocean. I mean, he's a, he's a small, beautiful, colorful fish. Um, anybody's first trip to the Indian Ocean is probably not going to give a darn about that thing because they want to get into the bigger, better stuff. But I've experienced them. You know, I like fishing trigger fish. There's many good game fish, trigger fish over there in the Indian Ocean to fish for. The Picasso strikes me that because probably because I'm an artist. So I just wanted to see these amazing colors in my hand. I've also had a lot of these Picasso triggers eat my fly, and I couldn't hook them because they're so small. Their mouths—you could not, you could not fit anything bigger in their mouths, bigger than the tip of your pinky. They're real tiny, and that's why they're hard to hook. But um, over time, I think my first trip to Sudan was back in 2013. Since then, this fish has gotten some recognition as being a cool fish to catch, so I said, you know what, this is going to be the trip I'm going to knock one off. So I put on a small crazy charlie, like a size 8 that I would use in Belize, and I went out and just randomly cast two coral heads in waist-deep water. And uh, I had quite a few chase to fly. I finally hooked and landed one. But I had to dedicate an afternoon to that little tiny fish. I'm glad I did. It was cool. Very rewarding.
0: (laughs) So, uh, So is it kind of like... Line casting to these coral heads uh, and just somebody knowing that they're
1: there, uh, like the guides. Yeah, that exactly. They're
0: there.
1: Yeah. Yep. And, my, and, you know, my own experience, just and I remember where I saw them a lot in Sudan, and I remember where I've seen them in the Seychelles. I just always was focused on something bigger, better, so I really didn't take the time. Because it takes some time, because like I say, they're very difficult to hook that, that tiny mouth. But there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them around. And, um...
0: And, um If you catch
1: other fish, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, God, yes, many other fish. That's actually (laughs) another thing that makes catching the Picasso difficult because they have a fish called the blue-spangled emperor, which in the Seychelles I've seen big blue-spangled emperors that are beautiful and fun to catch, great big ones, but I have not seen one bigger than about 12 inches, not even 12 inches in uh, St. Brandon's. In those things, yeah, you're casting the coral heads, hooking them every cast, it gets a little frustrating.
0: <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, Doug McLean in Calgary, Alberta, asks. He says, "What what sort of water do you find the Picasso's in? What flies and sizes do you recommend?" Uh, and uh, he says they're on his bucket list as well, hoping to find some in Christmas Island.
1: Yeah, I don't know about Christmas, but they should be should be there. I would bring, you know, size eight Crazy Charlies, something that's going to get their attention and be small enough to fit in their mouth, and just uh, fish those coral heads. You know, when you're out there. At the uh, the ocean flats, they call it. And walking there, um, that would be a real good place to throw that small fly around and try to find some. You're going to catch some pretty cool stuff. I guarantee it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Never know what you're going to get. Then. Okay. um, So let's finish up with trevally. You had mentioned a a lot of different species uh, uh, there of trevally. What would you say is the most popular one?
1: Well, no doubt the ones that people are going there for would be the giant trevally or the bluefin trevally, And you find bluefin trevallees in the Seychelles. We catch them all over the Indian Ocean. I've caught them pretty much everywhere that I've ever fished for them. Um, but the ones in St. Brandon's are huge. So, for instance, in the Seychelles, we catch bluefin trevally up to 8, eight to 10 pounds. Um, I got a 15-pounder once in Sudan. But in St. Brandon's, you get them 15 to 20 pounds. Uh, just monster bluefin trevally. Um, the other ones, the island trevally, the yellow dot, and the green spot, they don't really, people aren't drawn to catching those, which amazes me because I think that yellow dot is very similar to the bluefin and just a super sharp looking fish. Not easy to catch either. The way they they come on the flat is they, they move extremely fast in a big school. They tail for like three seconds, and then they move about 100 feet and tail again. So you have to see them way away and kind of be a judge as to where they're going to, you know, where you need to go so that you intercept them, if that makes sense.
0: Now, are you talking about the trevally in general or the yellow dot
1: specifically? That would be the yellow dot. And you know what? The one I didn't mention, too, that people do go there, you know, specifically catches the golden trevally. It's a beautiful fish. It's, you know, it's one of the most prized trevally when you go to Christmas Island to catch a golden. It's quite an accomplishment. And there's a lot of them at St. Brandon's.
0: So so you you had mentioned the yellow dot uh has this, this behavior of coming onto the flat, moving fast, um, uh feeding quickly. Uh what about the giant trevally? How do they feed on
1: them? the giant trevally, sure. usually you're coming in you're coming in to the flat, you know, on the boat and you're in imagine you're in like eight to ten feet of water and all of a sudden you see uh a car door swim by real fast. That's, that's pretty much the way you see the the, the GTs and then you you know, go into frantic casting and usually you don't have a lot of luck. But you remember that that fish is there, so then you go you get dropped off in the island, go out and do your bone fishing and look for a permit. But then you might, you know, walk out in that waist deep water and look for that fish now that he hasn't seen the boat in a while and uh try to try to cast to him. I had a pretty I had a pretty extraordinary experience on my first trip over um i was walking a flat i don't want to get too long in the story here but i was walking a flat a long ways and there were a bunch of small turtles you know i say small they were about the size of you know an old record you know an album and uh i saw a big black shape out off the flats i ran out of flat and it went into deep water and i saw this big shape and i i thought it was a gt and i got my rod ready well it turned out to be a 12 foot tiger shark and um, actually got him to eat my fly. I never felt him, though. I tried to strip set never felt him, but I don't know what I would have done anyway, but he was out there (laughs) eating those small turtles. Well, a few days later, I was on that same flat, but there was also, like, a little peninsula on that flat that went out a ways, and I was looking for permit. Well, you're out there, so now I was, like, almost completely surrounded by that deep water, and I saw this huge fish coming. I'm like, oh, my God, it's that giant tiger fish coming. I'm going to get my butt out of here. And I started you know, going as quickly back to the main flat, and then I realized that it was actually a giant trevally. And uh, in that situation, it was coming to me. It was the best situation you can have. That fish has not seen a boat, has not seen a person, has no idea that I'm on this flat, and it's probably coming to the flat to feed. And I carried my 12-weight on my, I strap it to my back, and I can make a quick switch. So I just, I just dropped my permit rod made a long cast so the line was floating so I'd find my rod and, and went after this fish with my 12. And He was so big, and he did come. He chased my fly. And he, when he was coming straight at me, he was like 8 inches across or 12 inches across from eye to eye, looking at my fly, coming full speed. I got so nervous that one of my tricks is I'll just turn my head and just keep on stripping. And I never felt him. And I finally looked up to see what happened, and the fish was right there when my leader hit my rod. But he, he just didn't need it. He just taken. it. <laughs> Oh, no but it was i wrote a good story about it it was it was really an amazing experience i literally got water splashed up over me from this thing putting the brakes on and turning i don't know uh, what it was my flight just wasn't right it was a bummer they're smart yeah. they are very very maybe smart it was a animals. good
0: thing it, maybe it was a good thing you didn't hook up with it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well roger i was ready you know i said you were ready about for it. fighting a kind of car door huh <laughs> yeah it's kind of terrifying but i, I had myself mentally ready and i had my twelve weight rig that had that hundred and fifty pound test. I had my African friends with me to, you know, coach me. I was ready to put the heat on that thing. So oh, I look back, I wonder what would have happened. It would have been awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um we got one question on the internet, Rick Wilsterman in Boston. He wants to know what flies he used for the GTs.
1: Um they they have flies called brush flies and they're basically great big like uh five to seven inch flies. And we have two colors we, that we really like. The best way to describe it is we like to have some light ones in our box and some dark ones. So you might have some whitish tan ones, and then you'll have some black or, or dark purple. You know, a lot of us are going to the purple now for saltwater, and it's really good for tarpon. It's good for all big fish. And uh, my first choice, like if I'm going out there that day and I'm going to rig up my rod and I haven't thrown anything, any trivallis yet, I'm going to have the giant purple one on. And uh, I'll probably make four or five attempts with that before I go to the lighter color.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, we get them on
1: poppers, too. I should mention that. We do get them on poppers, but that's more like when you're specifically going on a Trevally trip to, say, Christmas Island or to uh, the Seychelles.
0: So it sounds like uh, definitely um, you could knock uh, at least one of three or four kinds of Trevally off by, by going to St. Brandon's
1: if you wanted to focus Absolutely. on Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say it would be I would be really surprised if you didn't get two two or three of those species if you went specifically to fish the different kinds of trevally.
0: Yeah, cool. Lots to do there it sounds like a great place.
1: Yeah. We've, it is we've got a,
0: yeah, we've got a, a few miscellaneous questions here, more about you and, and your experience than than St. Brandon's, but let me run through these and and uh Kathy, Crossland and Raleigh he asks, uh, when did you discover the artistic side of your fishing soul and begin drawing? Do you paint from photographs? Uh, the details are exquisite, she says.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I uh, I always was an artsy guy in school. I did a lot of detentions in high school for drawing on the desk, and I was bored out of my mind with most of the stuff they were trying to teach me. So uh, it's not a good thing, but that's it's the truth. And luckily... When I was in college, I did I still did some doodling here and there. And um, when I wrote my saltwater fly fishing book, one of the, the great fly fishermen a lot of us remember, Gary LaFontaine was a mentor for me when I was writing that book. Right. And he knew he knew I did a lot of art. And he said, Jeff, I want you to illustrate your book yourself. And I did. And I did it all in black and white. And uh, he said, I love the book. I love the illustrations. He goes, but I think this book's good enough to do in color. He said, you need to hire somebody to do some painting for you because I know you've never worked with color well he knew darn well that I wasn't in a position to hire anybody to do anything so and he knew I was going to go home and start teaching myself to paint so I spent <laughs> an entire winter uh working with watercolors first ones didn't look too good I can promise you that but within uh the end of that winter I illustrated all the fish in my saltwater book in color and uh, I look back on it they don't look that great but they're kind of cool because they're yeah. my first and uh I just stuck with it. I love it. I'm just passionate about painting fish. I'm working on a uh, a great big snake river cutthroat right now that I've been working on for about four days, and it's coming along cool. And that probably seems funny to some people because, I, you know, a snake river cutthroat, what's so cool about that? You see them all the time. You probably painted a lot of them, and I have, but it is my favorite fish to paint. I just have colors on the bellies of a snake river cutthroat and then all those cool little teeny tiny spots. It's, it's a lot of fun working on them.
0: Uh, I don't know if you answered her question about do you paint from photographs? Did I
1: miss? Yes. Yep. No, I didn't say that. I do paint from photographs. So most of the fish I paint I've caught before, and I always take the best photos I can of any new species I catch. So when it comes time to painting them, I'll have all the things in front of me, from the eye to the fins to the colors. So basically you were self-taught then. You
0: didn't have any formal?
1: Yeah, totally self-taught. Totally self-taught. In most fish, most of the trout, I you know, most of the basic saltwater and trout and stuff I can paint without even looking at a photo. I've done so many.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, Dino in Michigan asks, uh, when considering warm versus cold water in fresh or saltwater, what gives the best challenge and reward to you?
1: Well, I'd say in, in North American freshwater, I'd have to say a common carp. I mean, these things are really tough to catch on a fly rod. And if you want to become a better fisherman, particularly saltwater flats fisherman, and you live in the middle of the U.S. and don't live anywhere near saltwater, how are you going to practice? Practice on carp. Walk a carp flat and learn how to catch them. It will help you with all your fishing, but especially if you make that trip to St. Brandon's. And they fight like crazy, too, by the way. only mackerel. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um... Dino also uh, writes in and says, uh, "Okay, crazy number of species caught. What would be your hardest fighting and easiest to catch North American freshwater? Well, that would be the carp, right? You just described that.
1: Yeah, I would. About, and um, I'll just I'll, I'll I'll just throw out the hardest freshwater fish I've ever caught in my life is also carp related, and that's the golden masir over in India.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that's a freshwater. Yeah, uh, which we did a show on. So folks, if you want to learn about that yep. masir." Uh, Just uh, search for it in our archive, and you can listen to that show. How about saltwater, he says?
1: Uh, I'd have to say the permit. I mean, they're they're the hardest to fool, hardest to get to your fly, and then also they are one of the hardest fighting fish. They are really incredible, hard they pull.
0: And he says, uh, looking for chances to catch extraordinary fish. How about species that run the farthest Uh or jump the highest? highest he says i'm looking to see if i'm overlooking something on my shorter list
1: well i'll tell you that probably the longest run i've had of a fish in a couple of years was that 11 pound bone fish the highest jumping fish that i remember recently would probably be uh you know a golden dorado from down in bolivia or uh... Or in venezuela those things they skyrocket and the tiger fish in africa skyrocket as well just incredible
0: well, there's a few more for your list, Dino.
1: And then lastly here, Kathy,
0: yeah. again from uh, Raleigh, uh, she says, every angler has one landing that caused unparalleled joy. What is the single best catch that you will remember throughout your life?
1: Well, there's a few, but probably the one that was the hardest fight was getting my first golden moss here. And I caught it, you know, the first big one I caught on a fly rod was on the Ramganga River in India with my now great friend, Misty Dillon. And uh, that fish is absolutely extraordinary. And it took me a three-month trip with my wife trying to catch one on fly rod uh, where we didn't catch one. And I was never going to go Mossier fishing again. And then I met Misty in the States. He invited me over, and uh, after three or four days with Misty, I got that first golden Mossier. I'll never forget it. It was the hardest fish I ever had to work for to catch.
0: Wow. Okay. Good. Good. Alright, well let's uh we gotta wrap this up. Uh, we've already run over but uh another great show with you, uh, Jeff, so hang tight with me, we're gonna get my few prizes and um, so stick with me till the, the bitter end here if you will. Um, when we return here we're gonna give away a one year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one year subscription to Drake magazine and also that uh one year subscription to uh, fly fishing and tying journal. So hang with me here and we'll be right back and do just that. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region and 2 million acres of federal lands may be also at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is uniting this epic conservation battle. Uh, anglers from across the country are joining to, to uh, this fight, uh, be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more about how you can get involved. Uh, again, it's SaveBristolBay.org. Uh, just a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, uh, take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show says, What Did You Think of the Show? Just click on that link and leave us your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now we're going to give away some prizes. The winners for the drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. Uh, You don't want to miss out on your chance on these incredible prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we'll give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn about uh, FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Definitely an organization like you'd like to be part of. So if you don't win tonight, go there and join up anyway, and uh, it'll be well worth your time and, and money. Um, so our winner for that is going to be Joshua Henshaw in California. Joshua Henshaw. So thanks uh, for playing, Joshua, and uh, congratulations on winning that uh, one-year membership. Now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and you can learn more about that at amatobooks.com a great publisher that has all kinds of books on fly fishing. So check them out, as well as some periodicals besides the the Fly Fishing Italian Journal. So amatobooks.com. And our winner there is going to be Sean Rains. Sean Rains in South Dakota. So um, congratulations to you, Sean. and uh, Joshua and Sean, uh, I I know you're going to enjoy your prizes, and uh, uh, we'll get back to you after the show on on how you can uh, get me the information to uh, to collect those prizes. So, thanks for playing. And um, now we'll give away that subscription—a one-year subscription to the Drake Magazine, courtesy of the Drake Magazine. And and Drake is a grassroots journal for fly fishing enthusiasts. And really, no matter where you live, uh, it has stories and photos, freshwater, saltwater, and it'll entertain you for hours. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's drakemag.com. Again, drakemag.com. So we'll give that away here. Now let me just clear my queue, and the question uh, to win the one-year subscription to the Drake Magazine is, um, there are three names that were used for the permit in, Brand- in uh, St. Brandon's Atoll. Three names that were used tonight. What are the three names for that permit? This might be a little tough, Jeff, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay. So, uh Start typing, folks. Let's get some answers in here, and we'll see if we can't get a winner. Meanwhile, I'm just That's checking the you here. No, no. I think we've mentioned that a bunch of times. So uh, let's see if we get a taker here. Well... Maybe it was too hard, Jeff.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe two names.
0: Yeah, let's go down to two. We're going down to two, folks.
1: <laughs> Give me the one that begins names. with S.
0: Uh, and uh, uh, we've got, uh, we do have a winner. It's Doug McLean up in uh, Calgary, Alberta. uh Snub-nosed Pompano, Yellow Permit, and Indo-Pacific. So, uh, good. I <laughs> love you know, but- I was beginning to wonder there. Um, Lance came in second, but he got it all wrong. Uh, so, uh, sorry, Lance. Let sorry again, Lance. <laughs> so, uh, Doug, you, you won. Uh, please send me your, your address and so uh, Again, you can put it in that same box or send it to info at askaboutflyfishing.com, and we'll get you. Uh, I'll need your name, address, and, and uh, of course, I have your email address here. And we'll get you set up with that subscription. So, uh, congratulations on uh, all our winners tonight. We really appreciate it. And, and Jeff, uh, thanks again so much for, uh, helping me out and, uh, being just a, a wonderful guest, full of information as usual, uh, and also very entertaining and, and, and energy, uh, specific. So, thanks so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Roger.
0: Yep, well have a, a good summer and enjoy those nieces one more night and, uh, uh, I hope you get a good pizza up there.
1: <laughs> I'm on take my care. Way. Thank you very all much. All right. Bye-bye.
0: Hopefully all of you have found uh, the archive in our website. If you haven't, there's a couple of links in it on our homepage and links at the bottom of every page. Um, uh, check it out. We've got over 275 shows out there, just about any keyword you type in, uh, keyword phrase, trout, tarpon, Madison River, and now St. Brandon's, you're going to find the show. So check it out, and you'll be pleasantly surprised at all the information is available to you. Our next broadcast will be on August 1st, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. That show I'm going to interview Michael Gorman, and the topic for the show will be nymphing to catch more fish. Michael, a professional and savvy guide, has vast knowledge on one of the most effective methods of catching fish, nymphing. His well-tested techniques are effective on both trout and steelhead, so join us to pick Michael's brain on all things nymphing. We would like to thank the Fly Fishers International, uh, Motto Books, Drake Magazine, Whitbreak Key Fishing Lodge, Watermaster, and Baja Fly Fishing Company for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, at askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing on the radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.